0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Discipulus. Discipulus is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Discipulus courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Discipulus podcast, Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic Young Adults in St. Louis. Let us remember that are in God's holy presence. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. It's a, um, a Jewish tradition for rabbis to teach sitting down. Um, and I'm going to do that this evening. Um, I've got some back issues that are going on and, um, and all that kind of stuff. So it'd be better for me just to be seated. Okay, good. Hey. We're going to be taking a look, first of all, at uh, St. Justin the Martyr uh, tonight and, um, and the role that he plays and some of the uh, works that he did and see the parallel between what he was saying uh, for the, uh, it, in, the, in the second century and what we believe today and, and see the continuities. one of the beauties of studying the early church fathers is to see that continuity, and we're going to see that later on, also even in liturgy. Okay? So um, Justin is a martyr. Um, didn't go by that name. That wasn't his last name. Uh, (laughs) He was born in Neapolis around 100 A.D. So he's um, from the east, um, Syria, the area around Syria. Uh, He was converted when he was about 30 years old and taught in Asia Minor and then later on in Rome. Uh, He authored two apologetics, which we'll take a look at. And also another called A Dialogue with Trypho, and he was martyred in uh, 165 AD. One of the historians of this period was the Anglican Archbishop of Quebec, uh, Carrington, and he says the following. It's rather extraordinary for an um, uh, um, Anglican Archbishop to say. He says this If we were, if we ask, where the strong witness in the church is to be found after the death of Polycarp, we are bound to say that it passes to Rome. It passes to the church itself and to its succession of bishops, rather than to any individual. The individual who stands highest after the death of Polycarp would probably be Justin, who is now accepted as a Roman teacher and becomes a Roman martyr. One of the letters that he writes is to the emperor. Uh, This is Antoninus Pius. He was considered to be one of the five uh, good emperors, which tells you that there are a lot of really bad ones. Um, uh, Antoninus Pius receives this uh, letter. We don't know that he ever read it, but we do have uh, the letter itself, at least from the Christian point of view. Uh, The Christians kept copies of these letters. And so he says this, you know, Christians were being accused of being atheists. I think I mentioned that last time around, that in fact some of, the, um, uh, some of the Clementine family were either exiled or executed for atheism. And that meant that they believed in one God. And there's only one group of people that could believe in one God and get away with it, and that was the Jews. And since Christians had um, broken themselves away from Judaism, uh, they, um, uh, we, we were not included in that number. So he says this, So, we are called atheists. Well, we do indeed proclaim ourselves atheists in respect to those whom you call gods, but not in regard to the most true God, the Father of righteousness and temperance, and the other virtues, who is without admixture of evil. And then he goes on to talk about baptism and uh, and the Eucharist. Because again, there's a lot of misunderstanding that's is floating around Rome uh, at at, the t- at this time. And I think I mentioned last time around that there's some rather strange cults, one, one of which, um, well, it was a baptism by by uh, bull's blood. When they would stand a bull over on top of somebody, and they would be underneath, and, and then they would slit the throat of the bull, and, and all that blood would come down. And so when they're talking about baptism, um, the, the, the Romans are not really sure what we're talking about here, by we have Christian baptism. And then at the same time, uh, the Eucharist. And there's a lot of confusion about that and, and, um, and the accusation of cannibalism. After all, we're gathering together to eat the body and blood of Christ, right? That doesn't sound real good. Okay, so he goes on and says this. This is in the 65th uh, paragraph of the, uh, of the letter. It's a very long letter, by the way. He says, After we have thus washed the one who has believed and has assented, we lead him to where those who are called brethren are gathered, offering prayers in common and heartily for ourselves and for the one who has been illuminated and for all others everywhere, so that we may be accounted worthy, not that we have learned the truth to be Found keepers of the commandments so that we may be saved with eternal salvation. So he's talking about uh, a a water baptism. Now, even at this point, we don't have any, um, uh, any documents, extant documents that tell us exactly how a baptism takes place. Later on, within the next generation, we're going to have that. When we start talking about uh, the writings of, of Hippolytus, he literally goes through and says, this is how you do a baptism. And this is how you say Mass. And this is how you consecrate a bishop. And this is how you ordain a priest or a deacon. You know, And well, we'll it's, it, it's like a, a rule book. that has got all the rituals in it. And we'll take a look at that a little bit later on. But right now, this is about all we have. And we know also from... Um, Ignatius of Antioch, um, that, that from the earliest days of the church, that the church believed in the real presence, and we'll take a little look at that also. It goes on it says this, having concluded the prayers, we greet one another with a kiss. Then there is brought to the president of the um, brethren bread and a cup of water and of watered wine, and taking them, he gives praise and glory to the Father of all through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. you catch the Trinity there? Okay. Now, the term Trinity doesn't appear for another century or two, but already we're, we're very clear that we're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? Okay. And he himself gives thanks at some length in order, to, in order that these things may be deemed worthy. The Greek word, for th- he's writing in Greek, by the way. They're living in Rome, but the, the language of any intellectual in, in Rome at the time is Greek. And so he's writing in Greek, and what's the word for thanks for thanksgiving in Greek? Yeah, y- the Eucharist. So that's what he's talking about there. Then he goes on and says this, When the prayers and the thanksgiving are completed, all the people present call out their assent, saying, Amen. Amen is the Hebrew language signifying so be it. After the president has given thanks and all the people have shouted their assent, those whom we call deacons give to each one present to partake of the Eucharistic bread and wine and water and to those who are absent, they carry away a portion. So you see some of those common elements. Again, we're not going to Go into, uh, we're not going to see the exact way in which the, church, the, the, the Mass is celebrated. But even as early as Justin Martyr, uh, 130, 140 AD, we're going to see the elements right there. And of course, he's writing this letter to a pagan emperor. He's not going to go into detail about exactly how the Mass takes place. He's just trying to present an apologia to let the emperor know that what's going on is really not that weird you know you don't have to be afraid of us he goes on to say we call this food eucharist and no one else is permitted to partake of it except one who believes our teaching to be true our teaching to be true and who has been washed in the washing which is for the remission of sins and for regeneration and is thereby living as Christ has enjoyed for not as common bread nor common drink, do we receive these. But since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the Word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food which has been made into the Eucharist. So let take some of this apart also. So for one thing, you have to be baptized in order to receive the Eucharist. You have to believe what's being uh, taught. Here's another thing too that we um, tend to forget about. Let's go back one real fast here. And it says down here, and those who are absent, they carry away a portion. What are we talking about here? Taking it to the sick. It to the sick. And, and why would they be taking a piece of bread to the sick if it's just a piece of bread? Didn't one of the popes say that uh, the Eucharist is like medicine to the sick. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It was a church father, but yeah. But again, what is that piece of bread? What does the community believe that piece of bread is? That it's that important that it's going to be medicine for the sick or for those who are absent? It's the body of Christ, right? Okay, it's what we believe, they believed. So again, unless you are baptized and washed. for the remission of sins, and for regeneration. Okay. So that's what baptism is, is all about. It's, it's a washing away of sin. It's a regeneration of new life. And now, uh, as, a, as a result of this, um, this is going to be a real big controversy down the line. And, and part of the controversy is that the question is, uh, concerning the remission of sins, how many times can you have your sins remitted?" And there, were, there, there, there are two um, angles on this, and, 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 and the really strict people say once. When you're baptized, all your sins are forgiven, and then good luck after that. And later on, there's going to be a Pope, Callistus, and we mentioned him the other night, and he's going to say no. As, as often as you sin and you ask for forgiveness, the church, under certain circumstances, will forgive you. So you got that there. But that's, uh, that's all part of that baptism that we're talking about. Again, it's not common bread. It's not common drink. But rather, it's the flesh and blood of, uh, for our salvation. Now, go back a generation earlier. So Justin is talking about this now, right? But he's, he's not making this stuff up. There's an earlier generation in which Ignatius of Antioch says this. Um, do you know the story of, of Ignatius of Antioch and why he wrote his seven letters? Mm-hmm. He's on his way to be martyred. He's on his way to be martyred, right. And so he writes these uh, letters to different, um, seven different um, communities, Christian communities. And in these letters, I mean, they're very rich. Because this is the guy who was the successor of St. Peter, as Bishop of Antioch. So we're going back to the sub apostolic period when we're talking about this. These are people who learned Christianity from the apostles themselves. And he says this, I have no taste for corruptible food, nor for the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, who was of the seed of David. And for drink I desire his blood, which is love incorruptible. Now, if that's not talking about the real presence, I'm not sure what that is, right? And then he goes on and, and, and says this, take note of those who hold heterodox opinions, okay? not orthodox, but heterodox opinions, on the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us, and see how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God, They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which that Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God is perishing in their disputes. So there are people in that first generation of Christians who do not take the Eucharist, who do not believe that it's the body and blood of Christ. And so they don't go to the Eucharist. They don't go to Mass. And, um, and because they don't believe that it's the, the, the body and blood of Christ. So I think it's very important for us to realize this, because the fact of the matter is today, surveys are done, like like the Pew survey that was done just this past year, and it basically said that even a majority of, of Catholics do not see that Eucharist as the real presence, the body and blood of Christ. So we've got a lot of work to do in rediscovering our own roots and discovering our own traditions. And I think it's another reason why the attendance is, uh, uh, at Mass is as bad as it is. It, it's now about 30% for Catholics. Weekly Mass, about 30% for Catholics. If you believed that that was the body and blood of Christ, you would do everything you could to be there. I remember a number of years back when uh, Cardinal Regali was still here as Archbishop of St. Louis, and he told a group of us priests that he had shown the cathedral around. He was very proud of that cathedral. He showed the uh, cathedral around to a prominent uh, Protestant minister. And as they were coming around to the Blessed Sacrament Chapel, uh, the minister said to uh, the archbishop, he said, uh, what's that candle burning in there? What's that all about? And uh, the the archbishop said, "Um, I know you don't believe this, but I believe this. And I believe that in that tabernacle, is bread, which is actually the body of Jesus Christ. And that minister looked at him and he said, Yeah, I don't believe that. But if I did, I wouldn't be standing here right now. I'd be on my knees. You know, pretty powerful. I uh, was talking to a uh, former student of mine who is now a, um, a chaplain for, uh, for the, the army. And uh, he was, when he was in chaplain school, he was talking to his commander, who was a major uh, a Methodist a minister, uh, a major in the Army. And the uh, um, major said to him, he said, You know, um, uh, more Catholic priests have received honors from the United States military than any other denomination. And um, he said, Well, I, I, I'm surprised. I didn't know that. And he said, yeah. And uh, he said, is it because we have so many chaplains? And the major goes, no, you don't have enough chaplains. He said, but I'll tell you what. I'm going to tell you why. He said two reasons. Number one, if there's somebody wounded out on the battlefield and you hear them crying out, if I hear them crying out, my first thought is I'm not going to risk my life because I want to get back home to my wife and kids. You don't have that. But the other thing that's even more powerful is that little, that little thing you're carrying in your in your uh, uh, in your sack, uh, that little pix. You believe that that's the body of Christ, and that Catholic out there is is dying, and you want to get out to him so that he can receive viaticum, he can receive the last sacraments before he dies, and you're willing to risk your life to do that, and. Uh, Ed told me, he said, he said, yeah, yeah, you're right. So it's a powerful thing to actually have that belief as, uh, as, as Ignatius had, as Justin had. It changes your life. Again, we go back to St. Saint, uh, Saint Justin, and he says this, by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him, set down by him, so in other words, what Jesus did at the Last Supper, which was not a picnic, you know, it, it wasn't a, a party, it was a, it was a, a ritual meal, it, it was a Passover meal. And so it's set down by Jesus himself, and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nourished is both the flesh and the blood of that incarnated Jesus. The apostles... In the memoirs which they produced, which are called gospels, have thus passed on that which was enjoined upon them that Jesus took bread and having given thanks said, do this in remembrance of me, this is my body. And in like manner, taking the cup and having given thanks, he said, this is my blood, he imparted this to them only. In another passage, uh, this is by the right, on the right, that's uh, that's a, a bust of Antoninus Pius, the emperor. And he continues on and he writes this, he said, the evil demons, however, have passed on this imitation in the mysteries of Mithra. For as you know and are able to learn, bread and a cup of water together with certain incantations are used in the initiation of the mystic rites. Now the cult of Mithra was very popular. At the same time Christianity was operating underground in Rome, the cult of Mithra was very popular among Roman soldiers. And these Roman soldiers would uh, join in these these secret rituals. And the rituals involved a, a, a cup of water and a piece of bread. And so what Justin is saying there is, you know about the cult of Mithra. And the reason why they're doing what they're doing is because evil demons have corrupted their minds and are doing that. Any questions on the, um, on the dialogues? So he writes one dialogue to the emperor, and he writes another dialogue to the Senate. And again, we have no evidence that either the emperor or the Senate ever read those dialogues or paid attention to them. Um, but we do have the, the copies that Christians kept and continued keeping over and over again. Yes, sir. So I'm guessing that since we don't have like a more detailed description of the ritual than this one, this period, that there's not, we believe, like a superset ritual that you have to say at least this thing, and then this thing happens. At this point, we don't yeah. with Justin. However... In the next couple years, we're going to have somebody who does. He goes back, and, and, and we'll talk about him later on, Hippolytus. Hippolytus, uh, just a, a real quickie, um, Hippolytus had a problem with the pope. And when you have a problem with the pope, what you do is you start your own church. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's what he did. Uh, he got some priests together, some deacons together that didn't like the pope, and they all elected him pope. And so now you've got two popes in Rome. And the one real pope, uh, this is Callistos again, uh, is going about doing his own thing. And then you've got Hippolytus who's claiming to be pope. And and in order to make sure that his church is going to survive, the real church is passing all this on uh, orally. It's all passing on orally. Hippolytus, on the other hand, takes and he writes it down so that the next generation is going to be able to do things according to his little old Orthodox Church. In the end, he ends up coming back to the Catholic Church. But in the end, he ends up giving us this, it's called the Apostolic Traditions, a fantastic insight into what was actually going on. But it's going to take another decade, two decades, before we get that insight. But what you can see the elements here. Remember, again, that Justin is not writing to the Christian community and he's not writing to the seminarians. This is how you're going to do this, right? He's writing to the emperor. He's writing to the Senate. And so he's kind of like giving a, an overview. But with, within that overview, you can find elements of what he's he's talking about there. Any, any other? Yes? The belief that Pagan God's are actually manifestations of demons. Is that a common uh, belief about all uh, pagan gods among the church fathers? I, I would say, yeah, yeah. Now, the one exception to that, of course, is, is the God of Israel, who is definitely seen to be his God. Yes. Christians are, are understood that. But the others uh, are, are manifestations of something that's less. Uh, The first chapter of of, of Paul's letter to the Romans and and he talks about um, the corruption of of, of people. He doesn't say demons necessarily, but he talks about taking things from nature and making them gods, you know, it's like why would you, why would you adore a snake, you know? And then he goes on with other things too. But so Paul's letters, uh, letters to the Romans is a real good example, early example. Of, um, of really denigrating these other, other gods. Paul, when he's in Athens, remember, um, he's trying to get the attention of the Athenians and he says, oh, by the way, you've got this unknown God. Well, let me tell you about that guy. You know, and, and so he, he uh, dovetails that in with trying to talk about Jesus. And they're very interested until he gets to the part about him raising from the dead. And remember what the, the Athenians said then? Oh, we'll have to hear you on this some other day. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, when you start looking at some of the Egyptian gods and, and how weird they are, um, some of the Mesopotamian gods. Um, take somebody like Marduk. That's a, that's a god for us today. That's a great god. You know, Marduk is, uh, it is is this this god where he's got a great big mouth and a fire uh, inside his belly. And uh, in the mouth, uh, there's a there's a slide, and so what you do is you take your newborn babies and you throw them down the slide, and they burn to death. And so that's how they're offering sacrifice to Marduk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So any other questions about the dialogues before we get into um, one of the more controversial books that he writes? okay good so he has a, oops he has a uh a dialogue what he calls a dialogue with trifo the jew now Trifo is a uh, a jewish scholar and we don't know whether he's a rabbi or not the um the dialogue takes place around 155 a.d and so he says this he's writing this he said i have read Trifo. That there will be a final law and a covenant, the most authoritative of all, which must be observed by all men who seek after the inheritance of God. That law on Horab is old. In other words, the, the, the law that, uh, that Moses received, not, not the Ten Commandments, but all the other hundred and something laws, dietary laws and all of that, Okay, he says this, That law in Ohorab is old, and was only for you. But this is for all in general. A law set down after another law abrogates that which was before it. And a covenant made later likewise voids that which was earlier. So what he's saying here then is that the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, was set down and you can read the, that law in, in Numbers and in Deuteronomy and it's it's very clear uh, of what you can do and what you can't do. You can't eat pork, you can't eat pork, um, you can't eat shellfish, um, you can't eat meat and milk at the same time, you can't wear tattoos. Uh, there are all kinds of other restrictions and, and over the centuries um, the the Jewish community has built up more and more of a a deeper understanding of what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, Several years ago I I met a a young lady who moved here from the East Coast and she's now one of the most powerful and important people in the Jewish community at the um, Jewish Community Centers Association. And she just moved into University City. And she was going to act as a youth minister for Bas Ibrahim, which is an um, orthodox uh, synagogue in, in the Loop area. And so we were talking, and she wanted to introduce herself, so we were talking, and, and she said that when she was still on the East Coast that, um, that uh, her rabbi had a real problem because um, the menorah, uh, the, the lighting, the candles on the menorah had been blown out, and he didn't have any other light and it was a Sabbath and it was against his law to strike a match because that's work and so he said to her I don't know what to do you gotta have a flame that you can take a light off of the flame and she took one of his candles and she said, "I know where to go." She went down to the local Catholic church. <laughs> <laughs> she knocks on the door and says, "Can I get into your sanctuary? I know you got a lamp there." And the priest let her in and went ahead, got a light from the sanctuary lamp, brought it back to the rabbi, and lit the menorah again. You know. so it, sometimes you know you, you get pretty uh, persnickety about some of the regulations. And so it, what what um, What Justin is saying here is that all these little laws that were set up—they were set up to protect the community, to protect the individual. By having these laws, if you follow this and you go on the the strict, the the the, um, straight and narrow, that you're going to not violate God's commandments. You know, the Pharisees were really good at this. I mean, they took this to a fine art. The Sadducees, care less, but the Pharisees really took this very seriously. And so, what, what uh, Justin is saying to Trifo is, "Okay, you've got all these laws, and those are your laws, but they're not the laws of every body. And 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 here again, he's saying that that law on Horab is old and for only for you, but this is for all in general. So we're talking about the moral code." We could talk about the, the Ten Commandments. That applies to every human being. Right? Natural law applies to every human being. But the, the laws of, of Israel, the, the, law, the Jewish laws themselves, are specifically for Jews. He goes on to say this, And therefore God proclaimed a new covenant which was about to be established. And this is a light to the Gentiles. Not just the Jews, the Gentiles. A Goyim. We see and are persuaded that through the name of this crucified Jesus Christ men turn to God from their idols and other wrongdoing and practice piety and maintain their confession even unto death and by the works and by the accompanying miracles it is possible for everyone to understand that this is the new law and the new covenant and the expectation of those who among every nation are awaiting the good things of God." So, Jesus Christ, a Jew, dies not only for Jews, but also for everyone else. I mean, that's why... You, you ever wonder why St. John mentioned that that when they hauled in the fish after the resurrection, remember Jesus was making some some uh, grilled fish for the... I remember that? I mean, uh, John went out of his way and said there were 153 fish. Why? Do you think he actually s- sat there and counted 153 fish? The reality is that back at that time, if you were a scientist about fish, a ichthyologist, then you knew that there were 153 varieties of fish in the ocean. Now, whether, I don't think there are, but th- they thought they were. And so what St. John was telling us was that everybody was included. That net included everybody, all the nations, Gentiles and Jews alike. Now there's a problem here. The problem is that if you read those passages from Justin the Martyr in his response to Trifo, you might get the impression that the the New Covenant has crushed the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant has no application anymore. Any of you think about that? If you weren't, that's all good. (laughs) But for centuries, Christian bodies, and including some Catholics, have believed that the coming of Jesus Christ abrogated the Old Covenant entirely. And so there was only one thing for Jews to do, and that was to convert. And when that didn't happen, and for centuries that didn't happen, a lot of anti-Semitism arises up, especially in Europe as well as in the Middle East, and at one point during the Reformation when Martin Luther writes a letter to the Jewish communities of Germany, he says, okay, I understood why for 1500 years you didn't become Christian because that would mean becoming Catholic. And you, boy, that would be a stupid mistake. you know. But now, we've got the Protestant Reformation. Come on in. And the Jewish community was like a big yawn. Are you kidding? And right after that, Luther wrote another letter to the Jews, basically condemning them and saying all kinds of terrible things. And the Jews ignored it. And everybody pretty much ignored it up until the 20th century when these guys dressed in black and brown Took over Germany, and they pulled up Luther's letter and said, Oh, this guy was right. You know? So anti-Semitism. That could be read into those things. It should not be read into those things. And if there was any corrective that happened in the Catholic Church, it happened during the Second Vatican Council when the church made it perfectly clear that it was not it did not believe in substitute theology. Today there's a very small group in St. Louis, and actually it's all over the world. Uh, There are tens of thousands of people who are Jews, who have converted to Christianity, and they keep their Jewish roots. Uh, The group here in St. Louis is called the Association of uh, Hebrew Catholics. And um, and it's a beautiful group. And and what they're doing is they're actually helping us Catholics who are goy, you know, um, Gentiles, to appreciate the jewish roots of our religion to understand the mass as the as the outgrowth of a passover meal is extraordinarily rich you know then then we can understand when we talk about the you know it, it, in the eucharistic prayers it says after they had eaten he took the cup and said the blessing okay this is the blessing that the, that the wine is going to be turned into into the blood of Christ. There are four cups at a, a Passover meal. The third cup is the cup that's drunk after dinner, after the meal. It's called the cup of redemption. And it's just chock full of meaning when we see that kind of thing, you know. And so really, um, and and... And then, when, especially on, on Holy Saturday, Saturday, when we pray for the various groups and when we pray for Jews, we do not pray for their conversion. We pray that they come to the fullness of their own redemption. You know, we would love for them to be able to say that Jesus is the Christ. They're probably not going to do that, most of them. But they're still looking for the Christ. I'll tell you another a wonderful little story um, along those lines. Back in the late 19th century, uh, there was a, a, a Russian um, rabbinic student that came to the United States, it, like many uh, Russians, Germans, and there are a lot of immigrants. He arrives in New York City. He does not speak a word of English. Okay? He speaks Russian. Um, he can read Hebrew. That's about it. And he has, um, he has the Bible with him. And there were a lot of people in New York at the the time um, who would go down to the boats and they would invite people to come and stay with them. And they would pay a little bit, you know, a little boarding house kind of a thing. So anyway, he he ends up with this Christian family. And he wants to learn English. And so what they did was they gave him a Bible in English. And he had his Bible in Hebrew. And he started from Genesis and read all the way through. And by the time he got to the last book of the Old Testament, his English was pretty good. And then he put his Bible down, and he goes, oh, there's more? So he starts reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the letters, the whole works in Acts of the Apostles. And his English is great at this point. And he's all excited. He's discovered the Messiah. So he goes down to the local synagogue and he says to me, "He you 'You won't believe this. I found the Messiah.'" <laughs> <laughs> and they go, "Yeah." And he goes, "It's Jesus of Nazareth." Guess what happened? They threw him out. <laughs> you know. And and so he started his own ministry. And uh, he this is a group of of, um, of Jews, you know, sort of like Jews for Jesus movement. There, you know, uh, his ministry is called the Chosen People Ministry. And they have never left, they've never given up their, their Jewish roots and their Jewish customs, Customs, but everything they do is imbued with Christ. And, and it's true with the Association of Hebrew Catholics here in St. Louis, the same way. So it's a very beautiful thing. And, and we can look back now and see that any attempt that was made, and certainly there were a lot of attempts made, in order to convert Jews, not just to come to Christ, but to give up, their whole culture, their language, and everything in order to become um, um, goemized, you know, <laughs> to become Gentile, Gentilized, um, was just wrong. So, yeah. So what's the difference between Hebrew Catholics and Messianic Jews? Not a lot. Uh, Hebrew Catholics are Catholic. Uh, Messianic Jews tend to be Protestant, uh, evangelicals. They're Jewish Christians, yeah. You know. In fact, last, uh, last summer there was a convention in Texas, I think in Dallas, and there were several hundred participants from all over the world. And these are all Jews who also believe in Christ. And at one point, um, I was being told by, by some of the association members that they went down there, and at one point they offered to celebrate Mass in Hebrew. Uh, they, they had a priest, a, a convert who uh, could say mass in Hebrew, and and they did, and a lot of the Protestant Jews came and they attended the mass, and they were incredibly uh, impressed by the fact that there was so much scripture in in the <coughs> mass itself, and then hearing the mass celebrated in in that sacred language is, you know, was pretty special them. Yeah, so the dialogue continues on. Yeah. He then goes on to say this, The true spiritual Israel, descendants of Judah and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, that Abraham whom God approved by his testimony on account of his faith, although he was in the state of having his foreskin and blessed him and called him the father of many nations, are we to have been led to God through this crucified Christ? What he's saying there to trifle is that the first of all the Hebrews, Abraham, when he was called, he wasn't circumcised, you know? And, and so he's pointing out that circumcision itself is, is, a, is a human commandment. It's not a divine commandment. Three points behind that dialogue. Number one, it shows how the Mosaic Law was a temporary dispensation to be fulfilled and made redundant when the Messiah came. Secondly, the Messiah is in fact the Son of God, worthy of worship. And thirdly, the Messiah establishes a new Israel for all nations, races, and tongues. Again, you can read into that and, and read that, um, that, uh, that Judaism is then to be suppressed, but it's not meant to be. Again, what, what he's doing here is the same thing that Isaiah had, had prophesied, that the Lord God would eventually be adopted by all nations, and it would be the Jews that would bring this about. Here we find from the Second Vatican Council uh, that that document, Nostra Aetate. Now, if you read Nostra Aetate, it begins by talking about all different sorts of other religious bodies and, and showing that anyone of goodwill has some aspect of the divine, some aspect. But the last part of that document is dealing specifically with the Jews. And if you know the history behind that document and how it came to be written, originally, it was a document meant for the dialogue between the Catholic Church and the Jews. And then some Arab Christian bishops who were at the uh, council went to that committee and said, you can't do this. I mean, if you'd write a a document specifically for Jews, how am I going to go back to Syria? How am I going to go back to Iraq? You know, it's not gonna work. And so the committee went ahead and rewrote the entire thing, including everybody. But the, the grist of that, uh, that, that document, Nostra Aetate, uh, um, our age, is, is really uh, centered on the dialogue between uh, Christians and Jews. And so you find this, um, quoting from Romans 11, as well as Ephesians 2. As the sacred synod searches into the mystery of the church, we re, it remembers the bond that spiritually ties the people of the new covenant to Abraham's stock. Thus the church of Christ acknowledges that according to God's saving design, the beginnings of her faith, the first, faith of Christ, and her election are found already among the patriarchs, Moses, and the prophets. She professes that all who believe in Christ, Abraham's sons, according to the faith, are included in the same patriarch's call, and likewise, that the salvation of the Church is mysteriously foreshadowed by the chosen people's exodus from the land of bondage. The Church therefore cannot forget that she received the revelation of the Old Testament through the people with whom God, in his inexpressible mercy, concluded the ancient covenant. Nor can she forget that she draws sustenance from the roots, from the root of that well-cultivated olive tree onto which have been grafted the wild shoots, the Gentiles. Indeed, the church believes that by his cross, Christ our peace reconciled Jews and Christians, making both one in himself. Now, if you go back to St. Paul, and when he's talking about Christians and Jews, Greeks and Jews, he's saying that that the church is, is a whole bunch of, of wild um, branches that have been grafted onto the root of Israel. And this is a very Jewish um, um, a metaphor. Uh, of, of, of a of an olive tree, and, and the roots going very dr- deep, and then the olive coming up, or, or or the vineyard the same way, of a of a vine, uh, Jesus uses that analogy himself, um, in in the uh, in John's uh, uh, gospel, um, but here you have Saint Saint Paul doing the same thing, saying that the Gentiles are grafted onto a uh, the, the Jewish root. And so that's our relationship with the Jews. This is interesting. Uh, we know that, um, that uh, Justin taught publicly. Um, he, he, his apartment, he had a, sh- a shingle out saying philosopher. And uh, people could come and, and take courses from him. We understood that he wore a, a, a stole like a, a Greek philosopher used to, would, would wear, um, and, uh, and that um, one of his neighbors went to the Roman authorities and said, hey, this Justin guy, he's a Christian. And it was against the law to be Christian. And so he was arrested. There were others who were also tried. Uh, he himself was beheaded, uh, which tells us that he was a Roman citizen. Otherwise he would have been crucified. Uh, so he, he was beheaded. Later on, his bones are retrieved and they're buried in the catacombs of uh, Priscilla. Now, if you go to Rome today, you can go in and visit the catacombs. And that's what, now we're on the right side, that's a catacomb there. And, um, and there's one catacomb there called, it's named after Priscilla. I think it was, she was the woman who donated the grounds. But uh, the important thing for us is that we knew all of this. And, um, but we didn't know where the body was. And we didn't know exactly where Priscilla's catacombs were. In the mid-19th century, there was this phenomenal archaeologist. His name is um, Giovanni Battista de Rossi. And uh, he spent his whole life doing Christian archaeology. And one day, he's walking around Rome, and there's there's a little garden there, and there's a shed in that garden. And that shed is centuries old. And he went in to look in the, You know, he's looking around, and he sees um, a couple stones, cobblestones, that don't match the other cobblestones. And he digs them up and he put them next to each other, and this is what he read, M Hustinos. Remember, there's no J in, in, in Latin, and or Latin or Greek, there's no J. So it's either going to be an I or it's going to be an X. M, what does the M stand for? Martyr. And with that, he figured out that he was standing on top of the, um, of, of the catacombs of, of, um, um, of Priscilla. And he began then the ex- excavation and discovery of uh, the bones of, of Justin the Martyr. Um, let's go ahead and take about a five minute break, and then we'll take a, a glance at the, uh, the next father that we want to take a look at. <laughs> We'll uh, take a little look at uh, Tertullian. Let's get uh, started with, uh, with him. Um, first of all, his, uh, his official name is Quintus Septimus Florens Tertullianus. Um, pretty good sign that he was from uh, nobility, um, from the upper uh, e- echelons. He was born around the time of the martyrdom of St. Justin. He himself is from North Africa, from the city of Carthage. He was trained as a lawyer, and around 35 years old, he watched and witnessed a group of Christians being taken out to be killed. That witness, you hear that over and over again, and in fact, he's the one that came up with the saying that the... the, blood of martyrs is the seed of conversion. Because so many, in his case, it's the same thing. When he saw people willing to go to their death, and remember, you know, he's raised believing in all these weird gods, and none of those gods can save him. And whether he believes that he will have some kind sort of life after death, that's all up in the air. But these Christians believed it enough that they were willing to go to their own death. And so he was shaken by that, then he was intrigued by that, and then he was beguiled by that. He had to become a Christian himself. He is the first of the early church fathers that are going to write in Latin. All the other church fathers are writing in Greek, but he's gonna write in Latin. And we're going to see that there are actually three phases in his, um, in his um, Christian life. For one thing, he's going to be a Catholic for between six and ten years, and very solid Catholic. His writings are going to be very solid. And then there are going to be about six years, and his writings are going to be really questionable. It's like, what's going on in his mind? And then finally, the last seven years of his life, He is going to be extreme. He's going to be schismatic. He's going to be following a heretic by the name of Montanus. And he he finishes badly as a result. It's a shame. But we can go through and we can glean out the good stuff um, and and then see where he ends up uh, going wrong. So in 197, uh, he writes a, um, another apology, apologeticum. Uh, he says this in the 17th paragraph, the first part of the 17th paragraph, he says, the object of our worship is the one God who by the word of his command, by the reason of his plan, and by the strength of his power, has brought forth nothing. For the glory of his majesty, this whole construction of elements, bodies, spirits, whence also the Greeks have bestowed upon the world the name cosmos. He is invisible, and yet he may be seen. He is intangible, and yet his presence is apparent through his grace. He goes on again about God, he is immeasurable and yet his is measured by the human senses. He is therefore as real as he is great in regard to other things that which is able to be seen, to be touched, or to be measured is less than the eye by which it is seen than the hand by which it is touched and the senses by which it is discovered. But what is truly infinite is known only to itself. In another um, one of his letters, it's it's entitled The Veiling of Virgins, uh, Why Virgins Should Wear Veils. <coughs> Muhammad could learn something from that. It says the following: He says, The rule of faith indeed is altogether one, alone, unchangeable, and irreformable. It is as follows follows, to believe in one, only, almighty God, the creator of the world, and in his son, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, raised from the dead on the third day, received into heaven, and now sits at the right of the Father waiting to come to judge the living and the dead during the resurrection of the flesh the bishop that I have up uh, the picture up on the right side that's Bishop Gottwald he was auxiliary Bishop here in st. Louis and the reason I have his picture there is because take again go back and, and read that section uh, 3. Uh, 1.3 and what do we what do we s- what is that? The Apostles, Creed. the Apostles' Creed. Yeah, yeah. So this is written in, in two thirteen. The uh, there, there's a uh, a theory out that the Apostles' Creed was actually written by uh, by Saint Ambrose. That theory is absolutely incorrect, because here we have a hundred years before Saint Ambrose we have the Apostle's Creed, at least the elements of the Apostle's Creed right there. Now there's another legend about the Apostle's Creed, you might be familiar with that. And that is that at one point all the Apostles got together and they said, okay, what did Jesus teach us? And everyone got one sentence and they all put it together and that's how you end up with the Apostle's Creed. You know, I, I think Sister Mary Holywater taught me that in grade school. If um, <laughs> you want to believe it, that's fine, but don't believe the Ambrose thing either. Uh, the Apostles' Creed has been around a long, long time. Certainly, Cyril of Jerusalem used it in preparation for baptisms, uh, for adult baptisms, the old um, his form of RCIA. Uh, so it's been around a long, long time. The reason I mentioned Bishop Gottwald is that um, back in the late 1960s when things were really goofy, right after the council and people were doing really weird things with liturgy and all that, here in this seminary, there was nothing short of a revolt. And you had seminarians leaving in droves. Um, Something like 40% of the priests on the faculty left the priesthood within three years. I mean, this, is, this was enough to shake you. And at one point, uh, Bishop Gottwald was called to come out to the seminary. Um, this was between the time when uh, Cardinal Carberry had already resigned and Bishop May had not yet arrived. And so he was the administrator for the diocese. And when he arrived out here at the seminary, he discovered that, that the, uh, the ringleader of the Vincentians, this priest, had called in the uh, the media, and so all the television stations were there, and and the seminarians were the, the ones who had left yet were there, and they were angry, and the priests were there, and they were angry, and this one priest said to the bishop, he said, "What can we teach with any authority anymore? I mean, you know, every the change the Second Vatican Council changed everything. Nobody believes in anything anymore. What can we teach with any authority?" And Bishop Gottwald recited the Apostles' Creed. You know? Yeah, a gutsy move. And and it just shows you that we do have this firm foundation if we're willing to stand on that foundation. So he goes on and says this uh, in in, uh, the fourth uh, um, paragraph. This law of faith remains the same. The other points of discipline and practice admit newer correction since, of course, the grace of God works and perfects up to the end." So what he's saying here is that there are things that are going to change in the church, and they always change. But those are what what he refers to as the discipline and practices, not the doctrine. The doctrine doesn't change. It's always there. The Mass is always there. It might be recited in Aramaic and then in Greek. And then in Latin, and then in who knows how many other languages, but it's still the Mass. You know, the Ten Commandments are still there. The moral code is still there. There are interpretations and, and, and differences. Um, certainly, St. Peter, when he was in Rome, didn't walk around with a tiara you know, hat on. You know, There are things and customs that change, but there are other things that don't. Here, then, he also writes another. This is in 2.13, writes uh, a letter against Praxius, And he says this, Keep always in mind the rule of faith which I profess, and by which I bear witness to the Father and the Son and the Spirit are inseparable from each other. And then you will understand what is meant by it. Observe now that I say the Father is other, and the Son is other, and the Spirit is other. This statement is wrongly understood by every uneducated and perversely disposed individual as if it were meant diversity and implied by that diversity a separation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's grappling with this idea of the Trinity. Now, this is in 2.13, but it's not going to be for another 150 years before you have three brilliant Greek uh, theologians, some related to each other, the, the three knew each other, that actually are able to make some sense out of the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Later on, we're going to see how Hippolytus gets involved with this, this Trinitarian uh, theology, too. You know, That's why today. Muslims refer to us as tritheists, that Catholics, Christians are tritheists because we believe in three gods. And we have to come back and say, no, we believe in one god. And and they just don't get that. And frankly, we don't get it either. (laughs) It's a a mystery, which is to say it's a truth that's been revealed by God, but not something that we're going to be able to get our minds around. That's, That's just it. So we do the best we can, and uh, this is what um, um, he's trying to do too. Mariology, he says this, The paternity of the Father shows the divine nature of Jesus Christ. The maternity of Mary shows the human nature of Jesus Christ. So the question is, was Mary a perpetual virgin or a virgin to the birth of Jesus? Um, many Protestants have have come to that uh, f- the um, latter conclusion because it, it scripture is very clear in saying that that um, Mary was a virgin up to the birth of Jesus, and, and then we've got this whole story about about uh, Jesus having brothers and sisters. And Saint Jerome cleared all of that up, and and one of the ways of understanding that is that when we talk about Mary being a virgin up to the uh, a moment of, of, um, um, of the, uh, uh, the conception of, of Jesus. It does not necessarily imply that she was not a virgin afterwards. And, if, and there are a number of other cases in the Old Testament particularly in which that, that term up until this clearly shows that even at that point it continues on afterwards. Uh, The other question then is is of her, um, of Jesus' brothers and sisters, and we know that the word in Greek for brother and and sister is the same as cousin, and so uh, it's very clear that that there's a relationship between some of the apostles and Jesus, but not necessarily that being of a uh, uh, a uh, filial relationship. St. Jerome argues both of those things. The Eucharist, again, the real presence, sometimes reserved when not totally consumed and self communicated throughout the week. So, as of the time of um, of, um, Tertullian, daily Mass was not a reality. Uh, A century later, it will be. It can't be a reality because the church is being persecuted. And so the church is going underground, literally sometimes, in, in Rome. Mass is being celebrated in the, in the catacombs. It's being cat- done in the catacombs because, by and large, the Romans are very superstitious about the dead. And so they're not going to go down to those catacombs. They did on one or two occasions, but by and large, they don't do that. And so you celebrate mass down in the catacombs, if you're lucky, once a week. And then you take the, um, the consecrated bread, and you, you save it. And, and there later on, we'll see instructions on how to save it. And then throughout the week, each day, small group gathers together, they say some prayers, and they self-communicate. Okay. Again, you don't do that if you don't believe in the real Presidents. Eventually, he ends up following, Tertullian ends up following a rather strange character in uh, in the East and Asia Minor, a man by the name of Montanus. When uh, Tertullian is baptized, he has a rather ecstatic experience, which causes him to wonder about things. Um, Montanus has uh, he, he comes up with prophecies. He ends up getting a following uh, that's following after him, uh, including two women, uh, Presca and Maximina Mila. Um, he goes into trances in which um, he goes into this trance and God speaks through him, he says. I think in terms of some of these characters that we've had within our own lifetime that have gotten these followings. You know, Jim Jones and, and um, David Koresh and, and people of that nature, that have gotten people to actually kill themselves because they, they have this charismatic um, leadership sense. You had um, a giant camp meetings in which thousands of people would come and, uh, and they'd be preaching about the end of the world. Um, two bishops, came over to that, that idea. One of those, the Bishop of Pontus in present-day Turkey, um, he uh, preached that the world was about to come to an end and therefore you don't need your stuff anymore. Uh, basically, uh, sell or give away your house and, and um, everything and, and don't worry about anything uh, and it didn't happen. Uh, and then the other was a, a bishop in Syria who again said, the world's coming to an end, and let's go out to the desert, and we'll all meet the, the returning Christ. And they all went out to this desert, and they, and they didn't have any food, and they didn't have any water. And they're all out there for several days, and they're starving. And finally, the Roman authorities sent soldiers out, and they rounded them all up, and they gave them food and water, and they brought them back into the cities. you know. That weird stuff was going on, and 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 Tertullian was buying a lot of this. Um, Montanus, some of the others uh, argued that celibacy should be universal, so that all Christians should be celibate. Now, what's going to happen a generation from now? (laughs) Yeah, all right. Also, severe fasting. Later on, in the Middle Ages, you're going to find another group of people like this. They're called the Albigensians, and they lived in southern France. And there was a particular, the, the, you had the Albigensians themselves, but then you had the ones who wanted to be really perfect, and they, 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 they called themselves the perfecti. And the perfecti went ahead, and they severely um, lived by very severe fasting, so that ultimately they would eat nothing. Uh, They believed that the body was evil, and so therefore um, the best thing you could do is to literally starve yourself to death and you would free your spirit from your body. The the process is called the Endura. And and these people were doing this. I mean, there were thousands of people doing this. Um, And then the other thing was uh, seeking martyrdom. They went out of their way to seek martyrdom, which is the opposite of what Jesus had, remember, instructed his people. He said, when they persecute you in one city, go to another. You know, that's not what they were buying. Just have to leave you with with this uh, adage, and that is that seeking spiritual fruits, sometimes you end up with religious nuts. (laughs) So... See you all next week. <laughs> okay. Any questions before we leave? I got one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff you told us this week and last week, it seems like the early church resembles Protestantism more than a few ways. It seems like anything goes. I mean, even after the Council of Nicaea, we've been really to decide mm-hmm. on whether or not Jesus was actually God. If hearing yeah. Uh, when did the uh, church assume its current forms and we would recognize that the people? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, we find elements of it in the sub-apostolic period. Uh, we find some of it in, um, in some of Paul's letters, particularly to Titus and to Timothy, where it's very clear that, that he um, brought in and, and laid hands upon um, individuals at the ordination. That's, that's, and These are presbyters, priests, and then also uh, deacons, even in the Acts of the Apostles we have deacons who are ordained for that, uh, that service. When we talk about uh, Ignatius of Antioch, and I should have maybe said something more about him, um, there we have a very clear notion. He, he, t- he says in those letters to the, um, the, the various cities, the seven cities he writes, he's, one of the things he says is that where the bishop is, there is the church. Where the bishop is, there is the church. And the priests and the deacons have an obligation to gather around that bishop, and to be loyal to him as he is the teacher for that church. Now they didn't use the word diocese yet. And the word diocese is not going to come about until the 300s, when Diocletian creates a um, an imperial system for the entire empire, and then the church adopts that. But until that time, they refer to it as as uh, churches, and all of those churches are interrelated, uh, so that um, the various churches in Spain, from time to time, would get together and have synods. Now, this could be very dangerous because it's still Christianity is is outlawed, but they would do it nonetheless. Same thing is true about North Africa. There are synods that take place. And we're gonna see later on, particularly with um, Irenaeus of Lyon, um, that that from the very beginning, these bishops and these early church fathers had a very strong respect for the Bishop of Rome. it was something very special about the Bishop of Rome, and maybe next time around we can talk a little bit more about that. But certainly when you have, uh, for instance, the Easter dispute as to where when Easter is celebrated, the Bishop Polycarp, St. Polycarp, went to Rome to meet with the Pope, and, they, and he argued his point, and the Pope argued his point, and then in the end they agreed to disagree. But he went to Rome to do that. And the same thing with... Um, Um, Irenaeus of Lyon, he goes to Rome because of a heresy and and, and wants to get the the Pope's opinion on something. And this happens over and over again. Uh, The Pope has, um, he's not called Pope at that time. He's called the Bishop of Rome. Uh, But even even earlier on when we had uh, St. Clement of Rome, I mentioned that last time around, uh, St. Clement goes and he sends a letter to the church at Corinth and basically admonishes the people at Corinth for not, not, not being unified in the church, what right does he have to do that? Because he's the head of the church. He's Peter. And then we'll talk a little bit. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit more next week. That's a really good point that I don't want to, to miss out on. Good. Okay. Great. We'll see you all next week.